Hi ladies, welcome back. Um, today we are getting back to our normal schedule of looking at the Haftorah this week. So this week is Parshas Achrimos Kedoshim. It is a double Parsha, so we have lots of text to work through. Parshas Achrimos opens with a discussion of what the Yom Kippur service looks like inside the Mishkan and inside the Beis HaMikdash. We have a description of the very famous procedure by which the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, would sort of displace the sins of the Jewish people onto the two goats and send them away from the community. And we also have the instructions for what Yom Kippur should look like for the common person outside the base of Mikdash. At the end of the second aliyah, we get the very important prohibition from bringing a korban, from bringing a sacrifice anywhere except for the Mishkan and eventually the base of Mikdash. In the third and fourth aliyahs, we receive the laws of Arayos, which are definitions of which exact sexual relationships are forbidden and which sexual relationships would be defined as incestuous. In the fourth aliyah, we switch partios to Kedoshim, and the rest of the Parsha is enumerating many other mitzvahs for which we're responsible. I'm not going to go through piece by piece, but I will name some highlights. Some of them are the prohibition against Lashon Hara, the mitzvah of peah, whereby farmers have to leave a certain amount of their field unharvested so poor people can come in and take the food from it. We have the mitzvah of maintaining honest weights and measurements in business transactions. We have the mitzvah to love the convert, the prohibition from certain types of mixtures, so a linen and wool mixture, shotnez. We have prohibitions from mixing two types of crops in the same field. We also have prohibitions from tattooing, prohibitions from men shaving their beards completely and their their payas, so the corners of their hair, and many, many more mitzvahs. I 100% did not do the Parsha full justice by going through it that quickly, um, but those are the main sort of bullet points that we'll need to know to understand our Haftarah this week. So I'd like to make a note before we get into our main discussion that which Haftorah exactly that we read this week is not so straightforward. When the Parshas are doubled the way that they are this week, different halachic authorities rule that we read different selections. So two major Ashkenazic authorities, the Ramah, who was a commentator on the Shulchan Aruch, and the Mishnah Brura, so the main halachic work of the Chobetz Chaim, those two authorities ruled that a selection from Amos is the Haftorah for when these Parshios are doubled. And there are some other authorities that I, if I'm not mistaken, some Sephardic communities follow that say that a selection from Yechezkel should be read, which is the normal Haftorah for Kedoshim. Um, so since I myself am Ashkenazi, I'm going to be following like the Ramah and the Mishnah Brura. So today we're going to be going through the Haftorah for Amos, but it's important to note that you should check what exactly your community or your custom is, and if it's not almost on Shabbos, then there is sufficient reason for them to be doing that. So before we get into the content of our Haftorah, as always, we'll look at the history behind where exactly we are. Amos is prophesizing around the years 3140 to 3170 on the Hebrew calendar. And if you better understand BCE and CE, um, this is the years 620 to 590 BCE. He's working in the land of Israel after the two kingdoms have split, but before the exile of the 10 northern tribes. Remember, all of the tribes except 
for Yehuda and Benjamin eventually are exiled away. If this context sounds familiar, that's a very good thing because Amos is a contemporary prophet of Yeshayahu from whom we've learned a lot in recent weeks. So they're sort of contemporaries of each other along with the prophets Micha and Hosea. So I will be sending out a timeline with Amos's life highlighted so you can see in comparison where he stands in time compared with other prophets from Treasar. This is only a Treasar timeline, so the um, Nevi'im Rishonim won't be on there, but if that helps you compare better, I'm going to be sending that out so you can take a look at it. Amos is prophesizing to the ten tribes, and he's giving them a warning because their behavior at this point in time is not lining up with what Hashem had in mind when he gave us the Torah. Amos encounters a lot of challenges along his journey of delivering his Nebuah, because he's not a local prophet to the lands he's prophesizing to. Amos is from Yehuda, and he's responsible for delivering a message to the people up north. The people up north don't want to hear what he has to say, because he doesn't come from where they come from. So they don't obviously want to listen to somebody who doesn't quote-unquote understand them and understand their unique issues. So the text of this Nebuah can actually be quite difficult to read stylistically because it's unique from most Nebuah as a whole. It does share certain characteristics with other Nevi'im and Trey Asar, but within the wider body of all of the, the texts from the, the Nevi'im that we have, it's, it's pretty unique unto itself. So I want to point out some of those characteristics before we get started, just to help us understand why this text is, is different from a lot of others. So the first characteristic is that Amos is very harif, so to speak. He, he delivers his nevuah in a very sharp way. His tone is often somewhat satirical, and it makes us feel really like he's losing his patience with the people that he's speaking to. In the beginning of Parak Dalid, to give you an example, he refers to women that are engaging in certain types of sinful behavior literally as fat cows. If you don't believe me, you can take a look at the first Pasuk of Parak Dalid, but that's just an example of how um, sort of spicy and sharp he's being by using certain types of language in his Nebuah. The second characteristic is that his tone shifts back and forth very rapidly throughout the Nebuah, and that can make the language very difficult to read. Even from Pasuk to Pasuk, the tone might change. Um, thematically, this makes sense because one of the trademarks of Amos is that he's simultaneously calling out sin by name for what it is, and he's also pleading with the ten tribes to do tshuva and reminding them that it's never too late. So those two messages shifting back and forth very rapidly um, sometimes can make it difficult to connect ideas because pasuk to pasuk, the, the tone and the ideas that are being discussed just change so quickly. And the third characteristic that I wanted to talk about is that Amos's attitude towards his nevuah is not exactly typical. He doesn't actually want to be a navi, and we see this in the end of Perak Zion, where he essentially says to the people he's prophesizing to, he says, I didn't even want this job. I was out in the field one day with my cows doing my job, and then God plucked me out of my life. He dragged me here, and you're making my life so much harder because you won't even listen to what I'm saying. Um, 
almost, of course, was a very, very, very righteous person beyond what we can probably imagine. Um, but he probably wouldn't have exactly walked up and asked to sign up to do this. Um, but of course, because he, he did understand that when God comes to you and appoints you for Nebuah, you don't exactly decline that offer. That's not a very, you know, appropriate thing to do. So that is part of why he's pleading so hard with the people that, that he's prophesying to. Please just listen to me. I did not sign up for this. So now let's get into the actual content of the Haftorah. We begin in Perak Tess, chapter 9, Pasuk Zion, verse 7. Um, the Haftorah is opening on a, a pretty low point in the Jews' relationship with God. Many of the specific mitzvahs and prohibitions which Hashem outlined in the, this week's Parsha are not being followed where we come into the Haftorah. So I'll start with reading the reading Pasuk Zion, the first Pasuk, in English. It says, You're like the Kushim to me, children of Israel. This is the word of Hashem. Did I not bring up Israel from Egypt as well as the Plishtim from Kaftor and Aram from Kir? Hashem in this Pasuk is saying, aren't you acting just like everybody else? These specific groups of people that the Pasuk calls out are other nations that live in close proximity to the Jews in the time and place where they're living. This Pasuk seems to refute a certain theme throughout Tanakh, which is that even when the Jews are sinning, we're still special and we're still set apart from the rest of the other nations. But Hashem is saying in this Pasuk that you're sinning so badly right now that you're overriding that overarching rule. You are really truly acting just like everybody else. And this is extremely harsh. So if we look at the commentators, the Mepharshim on this, a lot of them want to flip it around and say Hashem doesn't really mean it. But in the shot of the text, the, the simplest reading of the text is that Hashem is sending us a big wake-up call that how we're acting is about as wrong as it could possibly be. In Pasuk Chet, in, in uh, the eighth verse, Hashem threatens that he will destroy everybody who is participating in this sinful behavior. But he throws in a qualification. He says at the end, I will not totally destroy the house of Yaakov. So the backtracking at the end of the Pasuk is for the purpose of Hashem showing his ability to be harsh while reinforcing the idea that your fate as a nation is entirely in my hands. I have the capability to punish you, but I love you, so I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to destroy everybody. In the ninth Pasuk, Hashem moves on to explain through a mashal that he's going to weed out the sinners, the people that are doing this bad behavior, and punish them. It says, Ki he says, I decree that I will shake out the house of Israel from among the nations, just as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble falls to the ground. He's explaining through this analogy that um, the, the righteous people in Israel will be shaken, so to speak, that they're going to go through very difficult times. They're going to be agitated in a sense, but because of their righteousness, they'll be able to withhold, they'll be able to sustain and, and survive the difficulty, and they too will witness the Geula. But the pebbles that stay behind in the sieve, which don't fall to the ground, are like the sinners. They will be agitated less, potentially, in this world. They won't fall to the ground, but at the end of the day, they are, in a way, discarded as waste. 
Um, overall, this pasuk is a description that Hashem is going to make a distinction between the righteous and the sinners. So in a lot of nevuah, we can make the mistake of saying, but Hashem seems like he's going to punish everybody. What about the people who are behaving themselves, that are doing what they're supposed to do, that are keeping Torah mitzvahs? This pasuk is proof that Hashem is going to make that distinction when the time comes. Pasuk Yud says, yamusu kol he says, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword, Ha'omrim, saying, Lo tagish v'sadkim ba'deinu hara'a. Not because of this, not because of us, will the evil approach any sooner. He's touching on an idea here that's a bigger theme, especially in the Nebiya Maharonim. Um, we saw this in Malachi a few weeks back, actually, that the sinners not only sin, but they have no concept of what they're doing wrong. They're denying their mistakes all the way down to the last second rather than doing tshuva. And I think this is a larger point of hashkafa within Judaism is that a righteous person is not a person that never messes up. They're not perfect. They're not completely pure. A righteous person is somebody who can make mistakes and has the ability to admit that they're wrong and go on and take steps to rectify that. Hashem saying with this pasuk that even though you're sinning so bad, you'll still have some level of chosenness and he'll always redeem us because he chose us and he cares about us. Um, the Haftar reaches a bit of a turning point in the 11th Pasuk where Hashem explains that on the same day that those who sin will receive their punishment, so too will the righteous reap their reward. He says, Akim es sukkas David Hanofeles. This is the line that we add to benching over sukkas. He says, I will... Um, sort of stand back up the fallen booth of David, which is a, a reference to the base of Mikdash. Um, he said the land will overflow with food. The language the Navi uses to describe this is It says the mountains will drip with juice and the hills will roll, which like when the wind blows across them, the wheat that's on them will, will wave in the wind and it'll look like they're rolling. So it's an allusion to how much food and bounty will be in the land when the redemption comes. And next, in Pasuk Yodalad, Hashem also says that when, when the Jews come back, that the desolate cities will be rebuilt and resettled. And in the end, the last part of the Haftorah, Hashem's finally promising that when the final redemption comes, um, we will be, so to speak, replanted in the land, and we will never again be uprooted, so to speak. So, this is where the Haftorah leaves us off. That finishes Sefer Amos. And I want to zoom in on the first Pasuk of the Haftorah because I think that's really um, the, the hinge or the connection between the Parsha. So in the first verse, Hashem is essentially calling us out for the fact that our history, in some ways, it does look similar to the other nations nearby. The ones that he mentions, Aram, Kush, the Plishtim, they all had their own versions and their own experiences of exile, of slavery, of returning to their homeland. And the Jews that are standing by, that are living in their midst, could make the mistake of thinking, we're just like everybody else. We have a shared history. We've had some of the same experiences. But what makes the Jews different is that Hashem caused our history to happen specifically in order so that we could enter into a special relationship with him and serve him. Hashem didn't just bring us out of Mitzrayim. He brought us out of Mitzrayim with the purpose that we should then go and bring the Torah down into the world and do the mitzvahs that he commanded us with. It's not as simple as this just happened and now we get to move on and do whatever we want. 
So the people that are receiving this nevuah are living in a time where the Jews are enjoying a lot of comfort, a lot of economic prosperity in their land, and because of this, they're exceptionally prone to foreign influences and they can forget their purpose if they're not intentional about remembering it. I think in many ways we're in a similar situation as the Jews living in Israel now. Um, we live very comfortable lives. We have money. Numerically, most of us are living among other nations of the world with strange customs and lifestyles. But if we try hard enough, we can find certain parallels between us and them. And this week's Haftor is serving as a reminder, along with the Parsha, that it's not our job to do that. It's our job to focus on the ways in which we as Jews are special and we as Jews are different. The laws that it gives us, they're not arbitrary. They're not just there to be a thorn in our side to make our lives logistically more difficult. They're specifically designed to keep us separate from the other nations that we find ourselves living close to because they're designed to keep us oriented towards our true mission and goal of serving Kadosh Baruch Hu and remembering that although we could fall into the mistake of thinking that we have certain historical similarities, that our experience as the Jewish nation has been so perfectly and meticulously designed by, by Hashem to orient us towards a mission, and we have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we could fall into all different types of behavior, some of which is outlined in the rest of the Nabiim Acharonim, and I won't go into that now, but you can certainly look it up. It's not pretty. So... Almost as a difficult text to read, if you look in the Pesukim, um, it might not make so much sense, and don't get down on yourself, it's very, very difficult text to read. Um, if you do look in the, in the actual text and you want to talk about it, I did go through some of the Mepharshim, and they, they go into extensive sort of conversations of their own on each Pesuk, so always feel free to reach out, and um, everybody have a wonderful Shabbos, and I will see you next week.